Heavenly Father, help our unbelief this morning. Help us to see you in the way that all things can be restored through you. God, let your word penetrate us. Even in the most deepest misery we might feel, or pain or struggle, help our unbelief. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You ever had a camp high? You know, the summer camp high. The one that's full of sugar, summer loving, the lake, camp songs. You know, all that feeling that comes with the camp high. Maybe some of you didn't go to camp growing up and didn't have that camp high. Maybe it was a, a mission trip high. Or maybe the vacation high. Or the honeymoon high. You know, those times where you get away from the world and you just take it all in, enjoy those camp highs. Well, what happens when you come down from them? You come back to school, to life, to work, to laundry, to other people that have not gone through the amazing camp experience that you've gone through. What do you do coming back to that? This is the season of the year where we often think this way because now it's back to the routines of school, going back to the office for some of us that have been away for a long time, going back to the reality that some of us are going to have to wear masks again, political issues come back, whatever they might be, we're back to it. Well, today, we are going to see three disciples come back from what I'll call their transfiguration high, their spiritual high, and they're hit with the mess of life. What are the answers to the chaos of what they face? How about us today? What are the answers to the chaos when we come off the mountain? Let's find out, shall we? Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. It's printed in your worship guide. Please follow along as we read God's word. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, and grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. 
And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that, a crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Well, I will first have to preface this morning with a few things. One, please bear with me as I might be rusty for not preaching for four months. This is a muscle that needs to be exercised and I have not done it. So please bear with me in that. Also, so you know, typically as a church, we go through an Old Testament book in the fall, a New Testament book in the spring, and wisdom literature in the summer. This fall, we'll be going through Ezra and Nehemiah in a couple weeks. Actually, yeah, in two weeks, we'll, go, we'll start Ezra. But in the meantime, before we start Ezra and Nehemiah, the Lord has placed a couple passages on my heart and what I've learned over the past four months. Again, let me preface this not typically what we do at Emmaus Road. This sermon is not to glorify me, it's to glorify God and his work. And also, I will preface, I am a little raw. And with that, I am a little emotional. As you know, I'm emotional to begin with. I'll take it to level probably 11 for me right now, okay? So for those of you that are not feelers, I apologize. I will try to get through it the best I can, but I don't know what the Spirit will do as I preach this morning. So just bear with me through that. You know, there's something great about narrative. That in, when you do narrative in Scripture, which is what we're in right here, a gospel narrative, is that it really puts us in the story. And when I like to read narrative, I think, what character am I relating to in this story? And there's a few different characters in this story, and I want you to think about, what character do you relate to in the story this morning? Well, the first characters are actually not mentioned by name unless you go earlier in the passage. They're Peter, James, and John. Three times in the gospel, in Matthew and in Luke and in Mark, this passage is repeated. And every time it matters, the context of this story of the healing, 
of where it comes. It always comes after the story of transfiguration. If you know what the transfiguration is, James and John and Peter go with Jesus on top of a mountain. The glory of God is put onto Jesus, as people call it the transfiguration. We see Jesus' glory. Elijah and Moses are there on top of the mountain too. God the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved son. It is literally a mountaintop experience. So these three now come down to the rest, and Jesus, so four total, come down to the rest of the disciples. And what do they see? They see a crowd. They see the disciples. They see scribes arguing. They see the chaos of this man and his son who is possessed. You know, they said, no, maybe it'll be fine. Maybe life will be good when we come down off the mountain. But when they come down off the mountain, they are right back into the chaos of this world. Some of you might know, uh, the beginning of my sabbatical was spent on an island in Washington State. I spent three weeks in this home uh, where it was just me, no books except my Bible, no phone, and just me and the Lord. I would meet with a spiritual director every morning, uh, except on the weekends, and I was not allowed to exercise, and it was just three weeks my thoughts in the Lord. After the three weeks, I hadn't been around people for a long time. I was in the Seattle airport reading a book because I was ready to read again. Sitting at a bar at the Seattle airport, kind of gun shy from people in life. And the bartender starts talking to me. I find out that this bartender is actually the owner of a dozen restaurants in the airport. He typically has 300 plus employees, but now he's down to just 60. So every morning he has to receive phone calls from employees that don't show up. He has to decide what restaurants he has to open and close, and he's run the bar for the past six months. On top of that, his wife's a nurse. She got COVID. It seriously debilitated her. And their marriage is in ruins. They live in separate bedrooms. And when this all is said and done, they'll get a divorce. Off the mountain. I get on the plane again. I just want to read my book. The lady next to me starts sharing her story about the divisions in her family over the past year. And then she just starts crying and says, I don't usually do this. 
She's just crying. Off the mountain. You know, I thought, I can avoid this. I can avoid the pain of this world. That's what sabbatical's about. Some of us think the same way. After vacation, I can just come back to peace. Now I come back to masks and school. And conflict in Afghanistan. And people still arguing. This is a beautiful thing about this passage. Some of us think, you know, maybe the Christian life is just living in the clouds. The spiritual high. But no. What the gospel shows us is that we live in this. We live in this brokenness. We can't avoid it. It's there. And many of us, as much as we might have come down from our vacations or whatever it might be, we are shell-shocked to see what is around us. Some of us just want to be on the sidelines still. We're paralyzed by the pain that we see in our world. And you are asking the question, what am I to do in this? And for some of us, again, our reaction is just keep me isolated, sidelined. Some of us are James or John or Peter, welcomed to the chaos around us. So I say, what are you talking about, Dan? Vacations and mountaintop experiences? I have young kids. I've never had a vacation since they were born. You know what vacation is like with young children. Some of you think, when's the last time I had a mountaintop experience? I can't even remember. I live in the chaos. And you relate to the disciples that are there in the midst of all this, or the crowd, or the scribes, arguing over what to do to solve this problem with this boy. It seems like they have many opinions, but there are no solutions. I'm thoroughly convinced that we live in a time of metrics. What metric can we do to solve a problem? Put this policy in place, it will produce this result. Put this person in power, it will turn the tide to this result. Give this amount of income to people, and they will be satisfied. Give people that are broken this amount of counselors or social workers, and we will have a good society. That is the modern age. Metrics, numbers to solve our problems. But I am just surprised here in the 21st century with all our plans, with all our stats, with all our metrics, nothing is working, and we're still arguing. How are we doing with our policies and our politics and our news at solving the problems? Are you trying to solve the problems? 
Are you in the midst of the crowd with the scribes trying to fix it? Then there's the father. While everyone is arguing, he is enduring the pain. He has a real problem with his son, and it's happened since childhood. So bad it throws his son into the fire or into water to destroy him. And this is what the father has experienced with his son through the years. I doubt the father is thinking about arguments about theology or arguments about what to do. He just wants something done. I don't think I've seen more pain in someone than a parent who is helpless in a child's pain. During the sabbatical, there's a family not connected with our church that I found out a daughter of this family who I know is battling a horrible disease and had been in the hospital for months. Of course, because of the situation, the only people that could visit her were her mom and her father, and they had to switch shifts. They couldn't even go together. I called this family up and I said, guess what? I get a special disposition, dispensation for being a pastor. One of the few perks of being a pastor. They'll let me into hospitals, you know? They, they bend the rules for pastors on that. And I would love to come and be with you. And here I am sitting with this mother as her daughter is... Wasting away. And they can't find a solution. And her tears. You think she's thinking about mass policies? Or politics? Or arguments? Here she is weeping to me saying, someone just heal my baby. Help her. Please. Are you there? While the world is in chaos, you are in a situation with a child that you don't know what to do with a child that is just, is just going through issues. Or a spouse that you don't know what to do to help them. Or someone in your family or friend going through suffering. While the world rages or the nations rage, you just want help. Where are you? Are you shell-shocked? Coming down off the mountain? Are you in the chaos arguing and grasping for ways to fix the problem? Are you overwhelmed by suffering? Well, guess what? There's good news. Jesus has come into the scene. He's arrived. 
And we see in this passage the people are looking to him for help. I mean, this is the passage that you would think, I'm going to go to. This is where I'm going to see some true pastoral care. I'm going to see warm and fuzzy Jesus give hugs and love and give nice words. But what does Jesus say? Oh, faithless generation, how long will I have to be with you? If you can, this is how you respond, Jesus. This is what you do. It should be shocking to us to see Jesus' response to the situation. But here is why I think he does it. In all of their desperation, in all of their arguing, in all their need for help, they have missed the power that Christ has for real restoration. You know, sometimes we forget, because you know, we're never in it, but uh, before World War II, there was lots of arguing, tons of it about what to do in the war, whether to go into war or not, especially in Great Britain. There were pacifists and there were people that were pro-war. C.S. Lewis wrote to that effect, specifically in the screw tape letters. And in that, in the screw tape letters, is an allegory about, some of you have read it, about a devil talking to another devil about how to influence a young man. And here the devil talks about how to deceive humanity. And again, Lewis is talking at a time where Christians were arguing from pacifists to people that were pro-war, and they were just arguing amongst each other. And in this screw tape letter, he says this, the devil, wormwood to screw tape, let him meaning the client, the human, under cause of partisan spirit, regarded as the most important part. Make meetings, pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, crusades, matter more to him than prayers and sacraments and charity. What Lewis was observing and what he shows out in this allegory is this. People had a solution in their mind and an idea of what they wanted it to be. And they then used their Christian faith to leverage it to get what they wanted. I wonder, in our arguing, in our grasping, we have looked past what the true solution is only to get our own ends. How serious is the solution that Jesus gives, the very thing, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. You know, in reading through this passage, there's kind of these throwaway verses that many times we skip over. But if again we read the context of Mark, 
Jesus is constantly talking about his death and resurrection. And here is what it says in verse 26. And the spirit came out of the boy, and he was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Where have we heard that language before? It looks like he was dead, and he arose. See, Jesus is showing a glimpse to us what his power is, that all things are possible, that Jesus in his death and resurrection is restoring all things. He is reversing the ugliness and the brokenness of this world. And some people that doubt and don't believe say, he's a corpse, he's dead, but... He arose. And I think Jesus is pressing on the point. Leads us to see one that responds rightly. The Father. In probably one of the most memorable lines in Scripture. I believe, but help my unbelief. For those of you this morning that have doubts about Christianity, or maybe you're just doubting right now because of what you're experiencing and the pain that you have in your life, let those words be a balm to your soul. That Jesus not cast that out. He says that you can't say things like that. No, he heals this man's son. See, this man has come to the point where he says, I've got nothing. I am desperate. And Jesus works. I love what James Edwards says about this. Please pay attention. The father, the son, becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has. When he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. I love the movie The Natural. It's a baseball movie. And in it, Roy Hobbs, who now is back into baseball after 16 years of having to go to prison and all these things. He had all the talent in the world. And then he lost it. But now he's come back into the major league 16 years later. And it's the championship. And he's injured. He's gone through a slump. He's old. It would be like myself or maybe Perry or Mark Frost tonight going to the softball game and it's tied and Phil Stuffel looks at us and says, you're in. <laughs> and it gets worse in the movie. 
You know, everyone thinks his special power comes through his baseball bat that says Wonder Boy on it. The one that he carved when he was a youth. And if you've seen the movie, sorry, he's lefty, I should bat lefty. He hits the ball, it's foul, and you see that the bat is broken. And then you think total desperation. He's injured and there's blood coming out right here. The bat is broken. He's old. The pressure's on. And then Bobby, the young bat boy, comes up. And Roy Hobbs says, pick me out a good one. And Bobby gives him the bat that him and Roy carved together. And then, of course, the climactic ending, which is probably one of the greatest endings in movie history, I think. You know, with all the sparks and all those things. You have to watch it, right, if you haven't seen it. In that climactic moment, when I watched it again, it hit me. It wasn't his skills, it wasn't his fame, it wasn't his bat. The sufficiency came in the love of the game. And it took him to that moment, to the end of his career, to the end of himself, to realize what really mattered. My brothers and my sisters, we have an amazing opportunity in this time. We are a self-sufficient nation, are we not? With our comforts and our leisures and our things, but they're being taken away. And we're anxious and we're angry and we're upset and we're desperate. Will we, in this moment, say, Lord, help my unbelief so that that little bit of faith will be the sufficiency in Christ? If that were the case, if that's how we lived, what would that look like in us? What would that produce in us? Here's what I think is one of the most shocking things about this passage, even more than the healing. Look with me in verse 28. And when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Do you know what is so shocking about this? That these disciples who were given the mission of ministry to do great things in the world, when the things came to them, they didn't pray. How convicting. They had missed it. 
They had missed the power that they had did not come from them or their solutions. It came from reliance upon God. Many of us think whenever I just use the word prayer that it's some task, some magical incantation, something we have to say to be nice and just do. No, I don't think Jesus was far off by saying that we should pray without ceasing. Prayer is reliance upon God. I love Nowen's quote right here. It's to the front of your worship guide. Prayer is a way of being empty and useless in the presence of God. And so proclaiming our basic belief that all is grace and nothing is simply the result of hard work. This cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What is our go-to? What do you go to first? I'm behind in the laundry. My kids are sick. My job is killing me. What is your go-to? Bitterness? Complaining? Life has passed me by. This can only be driven out by prayer. How about our living in a state of anxiety or depression? What do we go to? Our phone, Netflix, YouTube. This cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. We're angry about the pandemic, CRT, politics. What is our go-to? The news, a blog, someone to give answers for us. This cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You know, there's one person I haven't talked about. There's one person you say, well, I, I don't identify with that person. But it might be the person that we miss is probably who we're most alike. This boy. You know, I could talk about demon possession or whether it's psychosomatic or mental or whatever. Matthew actually mentions that it was seizures, probably epilepsy, but um, you see that Mark and Luke mention it as demon possession. So my answer to that, what is it? Yes, that's my answer. <laughs> All we know that there is something destroying this boy. That is a true sign of the enemy, of sin. You see, sin breaks our relationship from God. It destroys us from who we are supposed to be. You know, Jesus coming to earth is restoring us. That's what his mission is, restoration. Now, does Jesus sometimes restore us physically and mentally and emotionally on earth? Absolutely. Can he do those things? Yes. 
But for some of us, we might bear with those things until the end. But for all of us, one day our bodies will waste away. And we will die. And it will be the brokenness from God because of our sin. We fail to see that we are this boy. We are all being destroyed. And Jesus is the only one that can heal us from destruction. Are you enslaved to something? Is there some addiction? Is there some vice? Is there some attitude that is destroying you? How you speak with others? How you run away? What you look at? Who are you? Are you coming off the mountain shell-shocked trying to hide? Have you forgotten you've come down with the living Lord? Are you the crowd trying to fix things? When you don't realize there's only one that has true perspective about how it all works and can restore all things. Are you the father at the end of your rope saying, help my unbelief? Realizing you are insufficient and you can turn to only one who is sufficient. Are you the boy trapped, things destroying you, that needs healing? Now I'll do something that I don't usually do. Why this passage? Why did God give me this over four months and keep on bringing it back to me? I will answer, who am I in this passage? Right? I'm the guy that just came off the mountain to this chaos. I'm the one looking for solutions and answers. Maybe I get a little bit warmer when I say I'm the father that I sometimes say, help my unbelief. Who am I? Before I left you in April, I was not in a good place. I was anxious. I was depressed. I was close to burnout. I was not on a good path. Day four to five on this 21-day silent retreat, here I am going, what am I doing here? This is a joke. I can't do this for 17, 18 more days. I can't do this. It was that help my unbelief moment. No books, no exercise. I spent most of my time on this rocking chair on a porch looking into the beauty 
of this island in Washington State. And then I took a moment said, I'm going to do some stretching. So I lay down on the porch. And I looked underneath the rocking chair I'd been sitting on for four or five days. And you have to say, there's no writing in this cabin. There's nothing there at all. And underneath this rocking chair were all these notes For 30 years, this cabin had been used for people like me. Hundreds, if not a thousand people have gone in that same place. I had no record of what they had gone through. But on the bottom of this rocking chair were all these notes of people that had been in this place. I'll just read one of them for you. It said, here... God's love moved through wrestling, frustration, anxiety, anger, and fear, meeting me deeper than ever before, and drawing me into the journey of finding true love, freedom, and rest in Him. One of them said, you turned my mourning into dancing. And it just, it flooded me right there. I could not stop weeping. Who am I in this story? I am the boy. And God in that island, on that place, reached out to me and healed me in that place. And in that moment, the Spirit of God, whether it was audible or in my heart, it filled me with what? This thought. Your church prayed for you. Emmaus Road, thank you for these four months. Thank you for the vacations. Thank you for the, all the things I got to do. But thank you ultimately for praying for me. We have a real God that healed me. That it cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This story is not about me. I would hope it would show some of you. Some of us, I know how some of us are right now. We are angry. We are upset. We are anxious. We are in a bad place. A hard place. There is a real God. He is real. And he wants to be in connection with us and heal us. Let him do a work upon you.
this cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so good that you would meet me shows that you are real and you are working. Thank you for your church. Thank you for those that prayed for me. It shows that you work. Lord, my prayer is for these sheep and this church. For some that are carrying just really heavy things. I pray that you would work upon their hearts. That you would restore them that you would bring them into relationship with you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.